Hello and welcome to our next lesson in this series on Revelation. This uh, will be our third session of this study on this enormously important book, but, um, but so difficult and challenging. And I think you've seen already how it can be challenging to separate the intent of the author and the context of the time from ourselves and not try to, to put ourselves kind of back into it. But uh, this week, uh, on this in this lesson, I want to look at a handful of scriptures to start with. And I want to see a common thread in these scriptures, and it will begin to point the way to something about this book. Last time we talked about how saturated Revelation is with the idea of worship, and that worship in that context is about orientation. This author is preparing people for a difficult time. Um, Dalmatia, the the uh, emperor of Rome, following Nero, following Caligula, following Tiberius. There, there is uh, a sense of impending doom amongst Christians, amongst people of faith. They know they're going to be persecuted, and it, the hits just keep coming. And so this author is preparing them for the idea that uh, these troublesome times are going to continue, and they're going to be difficult, and possibly uh, could even get, uh, get worse. And in that regard... Um, we have to see how that applies to us. And the author is urging the audience to stay focused on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Stay focused and oriented, pointed in the right direction, looking to God and looking to his son as the source for everything you need. Not in allegiance to a nation, not in allegiance to an empire, not to a political party or a circumstance. There's nothing else that will that will save us. There's nothing else that will bless us in the way that God does, not even our own perfection. So let's look at some verses. First, let's back up to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, we'll skip ahead a little bit. Look at chapter 14, going way into the future here. And uh, But this is important to set, uh, set some context. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Uh, now go to chapter 16, just across the page there, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Um, hey, be ready, be prepared, right? Uh, chapter 19 and verse uh, 9. Then he said, uh, excuse me, then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. How often in Scripture have we heard of the, the, the kingdom of heaven compared to this dinner, this grand banquet that we're invited to? Uh, we, we hear some of that even in our study we've been doing on Ephesians. Uh, and you can check that out about being invited into the family and into the fold. Uh, let's go to chapter 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Okay, well now we're getting into some things that are interesting. From verses like this, we draw we get a lot of different doctrinal and theological points of view that have 
caused a great deal of controversy in the church over the years. Um, first of all, let's deal with this uh, reigning a thousand years thing. Uh, again, we're dealing with some idioms and some sayings that would have been very meaningful to the people who read them that are not necessarily meant to be literal for us. Uh, what it means is we win. That's the bottom line. We win. This reigning for a thousand years, we, we don't want to get in the weeds on that. The point is we win in, in, this, uh, in, in this situation. Now, blessed is the one... Uh, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Okay, we have a first resurrection, which means there's probably other resurrections, and then a second death, which means there must have been a first death. Okay, what in the world is this first resurrection and this second death? What do we mean here? Well, think about the ways things in the Bible that are described using death. What do you think it might be? Well, one thing that is often used or often taught with the kind of allegory or the symbolism or, or whatever of death is baptism. The Bible talks a lot about being buried with him in baptism, being buried with Christ in baptism. Uh, the, the baptism representing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we are we are baptized into his death, that we take part in his death. We read that in the book of Romans. Um, and, and then we are raised to walk in newness of life. Remember that verse? Okay, so if, if and more specifically, Paul talks about if we've died to sin, how can we live any longer? So there is a resurrection that we can experience and have experienced. The first resurrection, not the one that's coming when God calls everyone home. But there is a resurrection that occurs in the life of a Christian. It's when they are resurrected from, the, from sin and death through baptism. So if you've partaken in the first resurrection, then the second death has no power over you. And why is, what are we talking about? We're talking about literal heart stops beating, brain function ceases, uh, death. Okay, physical death. Why is that the second death? Because the first death is what you took part in in baptism. When you were baptized, you died to yourself and to sin and to this world, and you resurrected. So a first death, a first resurrection, you later in life will experience a second death, a physical death. But it has no power over you um, because you had the first resurrection. That's what we're talking about, this blessing. Okay, we spent a little time on that one. Uh, chapter 22 and verse 7. And behold, I am coming quickly, is the words of Christ here. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And then chapter 22 and verse 14. Uh, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. We had seven different verses of blessing there. Okay, seven seven's kind of an important number in Revelation. We're going to see that one a lot. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. So where are all these blessings found? Where, where, where's the source of all these blessings that we're reading about here? Revelation, the book of Revelation, is going to show us when and where um, 
these blessings are and when and where they are not and why it means it's important uh, for us to always be on guard and always be focused and have our kind of our head on a swivel because we need to know when we're looking the right way and we need to know when we're looking the wrong way and always to be pointed in the right direction. So the study of this book is going to be a bit of an uncomfortable one. It's going to be an uncomfortable one uh, for, for a lot of people. Uh, people of all across the political spectrum, conservatives, liberals, uh, libertarians, anarchists, uh, all are going to have some difficulty with this book. It's going to really shake you a little bit uh, because it calls us to a loyalty to Christ and to the Father. Uh, the end of time is, is dealt with in this, in this book, but it's not given any date it's not given any era, uh, no millennium. It's, we're not given any of that. It's, it's a preview. It's a trailer of, of coming attractions, so to speak. And it's designed to keep us facing the right direction. Um, the lessons here in Revelation uh, they, and, and the prophecies that they contain uh, do apply to every generation and every culture. And so we can find important benefits, again, not written to us, but written for us. Uh, We have to understand the normative state of humanity is warfare and battle and uh, aggression and oppression. And so uh, our weapon in that battle, according to Scripture, is love. Because God is love. And love wins. Love wins the battle. That's the message of, of Revelation. And one of the, the real messages, probably the, the broader message is do not assimilate. Do not assimilate. You are foreigners. Remember, we don't live here. This is not home. This is just where we are for now. And, and Revelation calls us and urges us not to assimilate, not to um, uh, be entangled in any culture, any earthly culture. Uh, we're assimilated into the culture of Jesus. We are integrated into that world and that community and that faith, and we are to stand apart from the immoral, idolatrous, um, murderous, uh, empire-driven, power-hungry culture that's around us. And we live in a culture of killing. They certainly did, but we do too. Um, it's, it's everywhere, destructive things in our culture. We're called to be apart from it. Um, and to make sure the early Christians understood what God required of them, this book was written in a language that many of them understood uh, because they were Jews. Now, it wasn't written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek. But they understood it because they were Jews. They were rooted in the Old Testament scripture. And you can't understand the New Testament, really, until you understand the Old Testament. I just want to put that out there. If you want to understand the New Testament, you need to get into the Old Testament. Okay, and understand where we came from to where we got to. Uh, but this book was written, although in Greek, it was written for a Jewish audience. It was written for an audience of early Christians that had a um, that that had a, a an anchor point in that culture and in that history, and so it was written for them to understand. And so, if you want to understand the message of Revelation, you've got to understand its source, the symbols, the language. All of that spring from that Jewish culture, that Semitic culture. So there are phrases and there are idioms and there are ideas that are going to be hard for us, so we're going to have to work through. But they were they meant something to the people who read it first. They meant something to the people who first received it. So we're not going to take their saying, okay, their 
their way of saying things and try to shove and shoehorn our way into it and make it about us. We're going to understand it the way they did, and we're going to move from there. Okay, there are seven. That number is going to come up a lot. Seven theological themes in the book of Revelation. The first is the throne. Okay, there's a theological um, theme about the throne, the monarchy, the king, the emperor, the, the ruler. Okay, so we're going to talk about the theological implication of the throne. Second is the reality of evil and empire. Okay, about powers and, and uh, authorities. Third is the temptation of idolatry and immorality. We're going to deal with that as a theological theme. Uh, fourth is a call to faithfulness. That is, a, that is found in Revelation, a call to faithfulness as a theological theme. Uh, fifth is worship, worship driven by our vision. Which direction are we looking? Which direction are we pointing? The sixth uh, theological theme is the theme of witness, Okay, bearing witness to something, being a witness of something. And then finally, seven, judgment and salvation. We're going to see that theme crop up a lot as well. So as we read Revelation, it is crucial that we take our eyes off of ourselves, as I said, off of our surroundings and our culture, off of our politics, off of our even our history, and, and put them where they belong. We need to put all of our focus on Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, um, our, the, the, and, and God the Father. He is... The, the ultimate sacrifice, the slaughtered lamb, the sanctification. So also, as I mentioned before, remember that Revelation was written by a first century Christian for first century Christians. Literary devices, imagery, wording, idioms, things like that are going to have to be understood as it was then. Much like we would look at uh, theater produced uh, ages ago, like Shakespeare, we would have to understand the words and the scenery and the and the setting to understand the the point. We got to do that here too. Um, now let's 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 flip really quick because we, we have other books in Scripture that are odd that have these kind of uh, apocryphal sort of uh, I would say flavor to them uh, or symbolic. Ezekiel would be one of those. Daniel is another. Go to Daniel chapter seven, and we're going to look in verse nine. Uh, starting in verse 9, we're going to go through verse 14. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were bur a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Then I kept looking, because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted for them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came upon up, excuse me, came up to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, 
which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, when we read in Revelation chapter 1, and he is describing this vision, uh, we see that he turned, and this is chapter 1 verse 12, turn and see a voice that was speaking to him, and saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle he saw a person like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Hair was white like white wool, like snow, eyes burning like fire. You see, this imagery was important to them. This imagery would have mattered. It would have, it would have been understood because he's trying to make the connection that this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. So he's making that connection. Um, every message that will be delivered will be delivered. But uh, we're going to get into these seven churches. And he, there's individual letters to these seven churches. And each message that's delivered is going to be delivered in the style of an imperial edict. Um, we don't notice that, but that would have been meaningful to them. So we're going to try to bring that out in the, in the text as well. Um, so let's get started in these seven letters. We'll go as far as we can as, as time permits here for this lesson. So um, let's look at chapter 2. We're dealing with a letter, the first letter. It is to Ephesus. Now, um, we're currently doing a study, which you can uh, go back and find through Facebook, YouTube, and on our website um, uh, on Ephesians. Um, and, and if you're watching this sometime in the distant future, then, uh, then it's probably there as well. But you can learn a little bit about Ephesus and about the Paul's letter to Ephesus. But here, a letter is being written uh, to the church in Ephesus. Uh, and it, it occurs in the first part of chapter 2 of Revelation. So let's read. Um, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And this, again, that's it, Jesus is instructing what to write. So that's why it says, write this, okay? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and, uh, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds uh, of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This Ephesus is a port city, all right, a port city of about a quarter million people. There are temples all over the city. In a port city, you have people coming from all over the world, all over the known world. Cultures are intermingling. Uh, belief systems, religions are mixing together. And so you have temples all over the place. Um, most of them are dedicated to Diana or Artemis, um, the goddess of the hunt, fertility, childbirth, and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, the emperor of Rome, uh, her main, the goddess of the emperor of Rome, um, the main temple of Diana was there in Ephesus. So this was a center point of worship for this, this religion. Um, now, the Ephesian church had not, had not given in. They had not uh, submitted to 
to these to this religion to this paganism uh they were being tough but uh they, so they hadn't bowed down to it but and they hadn't compromised their faith but something was going on something was problematic they were losing the love that was their greatest power and it's the energy of our movement so the here many many compliments are paid from jesus to the church in ephesus he said but there's one problem you have you've surrendered your first love you've given that up and he says i want you to go back and do the things you were doing when you started love is the thing we lead with love is what christians lead with and he's saying you're fighting you're persevering you're really working hard but do not forget to love what is what does the writer in first corinthians chapter 13 say if i speak in tongues of men or of angels uh, but i have not loved i'm just i'm just noise Okay, I can do all I can do all these great things, but if I don't love, and despite their perseverance and their strength, uh, they had left left their first love. Now, these um, Nicolaitans, a uh, bit of a mystery here. There are some sources that uh, say they believe one thing or another, um, but they're not contemporaneous. So uh, it's likely that the book of Jude, the very short book of Jude, might have been in reference to the Nicolaitans. Uh, so we find some other biblical evidence of their existence. But our best guess is that they were something called antinomian. Um, that means they weren't bound by any laws. They weren't bound by any rules. Um, there were early Christian groups that thought that the laws regard in the Old Testament regarding sexuality um, and other pleasures of the flesh didn't apply to them. So you had these groups that would spring up that would uh, want to give themselves over to one desire or the other and declare themselves free of any law or any rule, any regulation. And uh, the Nicolaitans, it seems, were probably something of that, that kind of group. Um, and the, the text here says, you know, I don't, God, Jesus says, I don't like these people and, and I want you to stay away from them too and I'm glad that you are. Um, and that's interesting because God never directs us to divide from fellow Christians, from fellow people of faith. He doesn't tell us to divide with one another over doctrine even. Um, but there are some matters the scripture says are so important to God that they need to, a special calling out. They need to be pointed out. They need to be made known. They need to be made clear and rebuked. And persistent, non-repentant sexual sin is one of those. Denying the lordship of Christ is another one. Being a divisive person, causing trouble, that's another one. And we see that these three things are found in Scripture as needing to be called out and needing to be set apart so that we can keep the sheep safe. And, um, and th these are the calls to separate, and these are the things that the Nicolaitans perhaps were involved in. That, that, that Jesus is calling the Ephesians to continue in separating from that group. Now, if the reason for that, the reason for that, the reason that, that we want to, to pull away from those kinds of sins and we want to pull away from those kinds of divisions, because if I love you, you know, I'm not going to take your stuff and harm you and break up your marriage and lie about you and slander you. Uh, treat you as a non-person or, or, or as an enemy. You know, if I, if I care about you, I'm not going to do those things. So you get the idea. Ephesus needed to return to that love. Uh, 
and in some cases, um, uh, even though they're rare, uh, that love does require us to separate from people. It requires us to get distance. It requires us to say, we can have nothing to do with you because what you do would harm our ability to be the community of God and the community of love that he has asked us to be. And it would harm the reputation of Jesus. So we see that principle in scripture and that's the principle here in, in with, with dealing with Ephesus. So um, here's a, a bit of a reminder I'll leave you with as we close our time here. We're nearing the 30 minute mark. Let's look at um, 1 Thessalonians. We'll go there first. A couple of warnings from 1 and 2 Thessalonians. If I can find it. 1 Thessalonians. I'm sorry. 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner around you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working day and night. Uh, uh, we kept working night and day, excuse me, so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would not follow, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Is anyone not willing to work? Then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life doing no work at all but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's That's unique. That's unique in a world that says, when you disagree, you you, you got to get kicked out. If we disagree, we just need to go our separate ways, do our own thing. The Bible is very limited in the matters to which it it uh, the matters to which it refers us to division. In other words, there's very few things that require scripturally us to separate from one another. We separate over things a lot. We separate over far more numerous things than what the Bible ever instructs us to. But here, even in the midst of that, Paul writes and says, hey, I've heard there's some folks around you that are hurting your ability to be a community of love and a community of God. And they are damaging the reputation of Jesus Christ. Those are usually the times when the Bible gives us the authority to divide from one another. If you're fighting so much that you're hurting the reputation of Jesus, okay, if we've got divisive people starting fights, if you've got such rampant sin that it's harming the reputation and drawing other people away, and if you're denying Christ, that's a different gospel. You separate. But even when you do that, he says, when you do that, admonish them as brethren in error. Don't treat them as enemies. There are going to be times when we have to pull away. There are going to be times we have to say, I'm sorry, we can't have fellowship together. Because 
we keep Jesus first, and if we're hurting the cause of Christ, then this union is not beneficial. And so we separate. And, and Paul says, even when you do that, you do that as brethren, not as enemies. We don't have enemies. The world thinks of us as their enemy, but we don't have enemies. We lead with love. As the Ephesians did in, in their letter that they received from the Revelator, we lead with love and continue to lead with love, even when we have to separate, even when we're fighting the battles of the culture in this world, even when we're, we're striving to not be dragged down. All right, next time we'll move on to some more of these letters. There's seven of them. We've done one. We've got six more to go, and then we'll tackle the rest of Revelation. Thank you so much for being a part of this study, and we look forward to seeing you next time.